0: If you've uh, logged on to the Vancouver Sun or even picked up a copy of the Sun, you would have noticed that Kim Bolin, uh, a well-known crime reporter in our city, has been in the midst of a a global uh, crime series called Lethal Exports. Uh, The series looks at uh, the impact drug smugglers here uh, in British Columbia are having on a variety of nations around the world, but also how we're uh, dealing with the issue of drugs uh, and organized crime as well. The The, the series is uh, done in conjunction with the Lieutenant Governor's BC Journalism Fellowship in partnership also with the Jack Wester Foundation. But it's a fascinating uh, a, a story and stories uh, from far away as Vietnam to Fiji to Australia uh, and looking at uh, local issues as well, including our I wanted to talk to her about it because I just had a great time reading it and I highly recommend uh, you log on as well online and take a look at uh, the five-part series. The fifth part just uh, ran today in the Vancouver Sun. Joining me now to talk about the series is Kim Bolin, a crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun. Kim, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thanks very
0: much for having me. Uh, This is a a fascinating conversation. First of all, congratulations to you uh, for this five-part series. Uh, I've enjoyed all of it, and I think it adds so much to the broader conversation about uh, drugs and organized crime in British Columbia, not only how we're dealing with the the situation here, but the repercussions of it in other parts of the world as well. What um, convinced you to take on a big project like this? Because it's something that does take a lot of time, and a lot of resources, what convinced you that it was time to do a series of this sort?
1: Well, I think when you're a beat reporter like I am covering gangs and the gang conflict that goes back 20 years now in BC, you're always looking for what the cause really is. And I kept seeing little tidbits here and there about what was going on internationally. We had the murder almost two years ago now of Jimmy Sandu right here from Abbotsford, and he was shot to death in Thailand at a beachfront resort, and then we found out that uh, you know the alleged killers were with the Wolfpack gang again, people right here. So I was seeing those international connections, uh, but not really being able to investigate them because i 'm based here uh, then in addition to that, over the last year, CBSA made a number of announcements about these record shipments that they had intercepted of methamphetamine out of the port of Vancouver, headed to Australia and New Zealand. And we're talking like tons and tons of methamphetamine. So again, like any reporter, I was extremely curious about who is behind this. What's this really about? So because I was able to get a fellowship from the Lieutenant Governor's Foundation, I was able to go and travel to these countries and talk to people there and find out what was going on. And it was uh, really uh, fairly earth-shattering for me, honestly.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, When you say earth-shattering, why?
1: It was a shattering because, um, you know, I think we're, we're so used to focusing on what's before us here, mm-hmm. you know, the toxic drug crisis, the gang shootings. But when you look at the international level, you see that there are Canadian organized criminals deeply involved at the highest levels of the worldwide drug trade. And that was a real surprise to me. Not only are they deeply involved, whether it's through the Hells Angels, the Sam Gore Criminal Network, the United Nations Gang, Middle Eastern Organized Crime Groups, what I was really quite shocked about is at that level, they're all working together. They're basically like transnational companies, entrepreneurs, they want to make as much money as possible, uh, so they all cooperate, Mm -hmm. right? So if you see a shipment that's seized at the Port of Vancouver, and it's literally a ton or two tons, it won't be owned by one person, it'll be a group. Uh, working together uh, to get the drugs there and sell them, or each sees part of that, that load. So I found it really fascinating and also troubling because when we look at the violence at the street level, you know, we have like you know this 22-year-old who thinks he's a member of the UN gang, you know, shooting at that 22-year-old who thinks he's a, you know, repping the Wolfpack gang, right? So they have these hostilities that have been born out, you know, with all this violence. And yet at the highest levels, the people who essentially control those strings are all working together. So, you know, these young guys are being used, uh, they're being misled, and I don't think they really have a clue when they go around committing acts of violence, thinking that they're, you know, doing their loyal duty to these higher-ups in organized crime.
0: Hmm. Now, one of the things um, you mentioned in in our conversation today uh, of drugs going to Australia and New Zealand, when I think fentanyl I think of China, and increasingly there's been talk of uh, of dealers there working with um, the Mexican cartels who instead of needing large swaths of land let's say for marijuana, you need a very small area to 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 to, to do synthetic drugs but i didn 't think of us producing it here and then exporting it to other nations similar to what Mexico was doing more and more um, how does How does it come about that we in Canada can can Produce this stuff, and now it's being exported to places like Australia and New Zealand. I always assumed it would be done in places like Mexico, where there's cheaper labor and they have the ability of a system that is isn't as as um, as progressive as ours. Uh, but we're doing more of it out of here. Why is Canada and British Columbia specifically become the place where you can actually produce it and then sell it abroad?
1: Well, I think. You know, when organized crime sees an opportunity, they take that opportunity. And some of the drugs are still coming uh, from Mexico up here and then being trans shipped through the Port of Vancouver. Uh, but what we do see happening uh, is these super labs where they're producing much more methamphetamine and fentanyl than the Canadian market can use. So, you know, police believe now that we have become an export country. Uh, We also have all the precursor chemicals. Ninety percent of the precursor chemicals used to make methamphetamine and fentanyl are completely unregulated in Canada, and that's because they're used in legitimate industry. They're used in the petroleum industry, plastics industry, and all kinds of other legitimate businesses. So there are no regulations on those, and the chemicals that are regulated, uh, those businesses have to get permits through Health Canada. Again, most of them are legitimate businesses. So due to privacy, Health Canada is not able to give the information about who is getting, you know, the more regulated chemicals here in Canada to the police, right? So there is, there is kind of a lack of information sharing. What police are doing to respond to that is they are trying to work directly with industry because, again, most of the businesses who are getting these chemicals, producing them or importing them are very legitimate businesses. They do not want to be linked to the production of fentanyl or methamphetamine, right? So there are measures underway to kind of deal with this. But given that these chemicals are widely available here, they're being used by organized crime.
0: Mm. Now, one of the issues uh, I co- found quite interesting is uh, the charter regulations in our country, or the, the the charter itself, and that when when you do go after a criminal, you do have to provide information in regards to uh, how the police came about um, this information, and in our country, too much of it has to be uh, to be uh, disclosed to the uh, alleged criminal. To the point that many other police jurisdictions around the world don't want to share information for us with us, which I found quite interesting in that we have to disclose too much of the very criminals we're trying to charge in regards to our techniques, our uh, uh, undercover officers in regards to what they're doing. That I found fascinating.
1: Yeah, it is really interesting. And obviously, the Charter of Rights is an important thing in this country, and it's there for a good reason. Uh, But sometimes these decisions, if you look at Stinchcomb, which is the one on disclosure, it's from 1991. There are subsequent rulings that update it. But the complexity of organized crime has really increased over the last 30 years and sometimes the court rulings the precedent set in court rulings in canada you know haven't kept up with this increased complexity right so you have people saying look we have to you know be careful here or it's not possible for us to follow through with a criminal investigation at the highest level because there would be em- information or evidence from outside of the country Uh, and our partners would not be thrilled if that came out in a court in Canada. So, you know, uh, some of the experts I spoke to were saying we need to take a look at this. We need to see what we can do better, or we have to be satisfied uh, with the fact that, you know, people involved in uh, very serious criminal activity here in Canada may get prosecuted in other jurisdictions, but not here at home.
0: Hmm. Uh, One of the issues I read with great interest um, was this story from today in regards to uh, our ports, uh, and some of the challenges before it. Um, I recall my early days as a reporter covering uh, port police, and uh, I think it was a, uh, one or two senators advocating for it back in, I think this is late 90s maybe, uh, and here we are today still having that conversation. Uh, why do you think there's been such a uh, such a challenge for a nation like ours uh, that is open to the world, with a you know, especially here in Vancouver, with a, a very large port and fast-growing port, uh, that we don't have, uh, you know, a full force at our ports, investigating, arresting people, all those things that are required with the amount of cargo that comes through. Why are we still at this point? Where we're having a debate and conversation about an actual pol- having a, pol- uh, a port police.
1: Yeah, it is surprising. It doesn't seem to have resonated much with the people in Ottawa who make these kinds of decisions. I did a series back in 2015 on some of the of security at the port and the fact that there are a number of Hells Angels and other people with criminal histories in smuggling drugs into Canada. They've got convictions in the United States, and they're still able to work as longshore workers. You know, that's troubling, right? Now, there isn't a uh, port... Uh, th- security clearances required for every longshore worker. There's just a small percentage that have to get security clearances for so-called restricted areas on the port. But in talking to people that work there, they say, look, even if you don't have a security clearance, you can really walk all over who's going to stop you, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it is a real problem, both the security clearance issue and also the fact that there is no uniform police presence, you know, basically on the front line, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, in the case of Delta Port, the biggest port, uh, you know, City of Delta, Delta Mayor George Harvey have been very concerned about this. They've commissioned this report, which has a lot of very interesting recommendations, uh, some of which don't seem like they'd be all that hard to implement, right? Like, even for the security clearance, they're not saying, oh, gee, everyone you know, working, like tens of thousands of people have to get this now. That would be very onerous. They're saying grandfather the existing people in, and when new people are hired, they have to go through the security clearance process no matter what, no matter what job they have. Uh, they're also talking about like a small levy on each container that goes through the port, like 10 to $15 to pay for a uniformed police force right there on the dock. So it's very hard to see why this hasn't resonated You know, at the national level, especially when we saw the federal government responding to the issue out of uh, the ports in the east uh, with the stolen vehicles, you know, they're going to have a task force and immediate meeting over that in the coming weeks. But they won't do anything, it seems, in response to, you know, huge amounts of drugs being exported out of the Port of Vancouver.
0: Hmm. Now, one of the things I always find interesting, you see the impacts of drug use on streets of Vancouver all the time. We talk about this on this show and many others. Uh, but we sometimes don't think of the impact drugs that leave our port and the impact it's having on, on societies outside of Canada. And one of the stories that you covered as a part of your series is the impact drugs from uh, British Columbia and Canada are having on Fiji. Walk me through a little bit when you visited there. What was it like there and what what did you see?
1: Well, first of all, it's a wonderful country, and the people are just so warm and welcoming and I really enjoyed visiting there, even though it was for a very difficult story to report on and uh, What I had heard is that you know there was a huge increase in methamphetamine use in the country uh, that they are on the transnational drug shipment route, so you know there's what they call spillage, in other words, drugs are ending up there on that island. In some cases, the transnational organized crime groups are paying locals to unload there and send smaller boats into Australia and New Zealand, and they're getting paid in product. So the methamphetamine use has become very widespread. Uh, People are injecting it there. There's no drug treatment. Some of the users that I spoke to, very tragic situations uh, because there's a shortage of needles. People are sharing needles, and HIV rates are increasing uh, there's also not just the ships passing by, uh, there's also been an issue with um, methamphetamine, smaller quantities, like a kilo at a time, being sent via air freight out of Vancouver uh, to Fiji. And even that's had a big impact, because if someone does that 100 times, they get a fair amount down to the place, the destination. Uh, so, yeah, it was very, very tragic, um, Coincidentally, since I left, they've now seized three tons of methamphetamine there that kind of proved what I said in my story, which is that it was being stacked or stockpiled there so it could be transported into these lucrative markets uh, down the road, right? So, you know, it does seem like finally politicians there are taking notice and, you know, they're looking internationally for help and assistance because they're a poor country and it's an island nation, 330 islands, and without the police force or customs people in most of those locations. So these transnational organized crime groups really prey on not just Fiji, but other islands in the South Pacific by using them as a place to kind of unload drugs and send them on to their destination. Um, and it's really tragic.
0: Mm-hmm. My final question to you, what are the two or three things we you think we as a society, and especially as a province and city, should be doing to deal with some of the uh, security challenges, uh, the legal challenges, and even the personal tragedies that are there. Is there two or three things that you think should be a priority based on your series, what you've learned? What are the two or three things that you think we need to be addressing to somehow deal with some of these issues that you and I have been talking about?
1: Well, I, I think we need to listen to the experts. I'm just a reporter that has, you know, done my best to try and present everything to the Canadian public because these are not issues that we're necessarily been considering here in Canada, right? But I mean, start with, you know, uh, a forum uh, organized by uh, the federal government into some of these issues, you know, port security, uh, precursor chemicals, why we're ineffective at targeting the highest levels of organized crime, while police across Canada and in BC in particular, are very good at, you know, going after people, you know, involved directly in shootings or smaller drug, Line operators here. Why can't we get the top people? What do we need to change to do that? And honestly, I think you need a panel of experts to come together and figure this out and hammer out some recommendations.
0: Because mm-hmm. if you don't, uh, we're going to be making the same mistakes over and over again, and having the same conversations over again, and that's... Uh, part of the challenge and I know in just not just this series but you've been covering crime for a long time so you may not think you're an expert but uh, I think you are that th- those are my opinion that's my opinion so I'll stick with it uh, Kim uh, first of all congratulations on this fabulous series I want to uh, encourage all our readers to uh, go uh, click on the Vancouver Sun not only for today's story but the other four uh, that uh, Kim has done uh, Kim thank you so much and congratulations on, on such great work
1: I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about these issues. Thank you, Jess.